I'd like to step in as a Afghan voice, not the Afghan voice, but a Afghan voice to say, I would also love if people really tried to look at the bigger picture instead of just how can we donate or how can we pay an Afghan artist their rightful dues. That's also very, very valuable and necessary. But also there's been a shift in the past few years on a global level. Social media has made things different for people. I urge non-Afghans as well as Afghans who might not have all of this information to kind of start learning what has happened in Afghanistan for the past 50 years. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. In August of 2021, the world watched in horror as U.S. troops withdrew from Afghanistan and the Taliban retook control of the country, with over 600,000 displaced people taking flight since last January, according to the U.N. Refugee Agency. Among the many groups who continue to be threatened by the Taliban's rule are artists, with the fundamentalist government viewing freedom of expression as an existential threat to the Islamic faith. Fearing for their lives, some artists have felt compelled to destroy or censor their own work or to seek asylum outside Afghanistan's borders. For curators Barbara Pollock and Anne Verhollen, the crisis provided an opportunity for their arts organization, Art at a Time Like This, to help raise awareness of the plight of Afghan artists. The two had started the platform in March 2020 as a way of staging both online and in-person exhibitions in response to lockdown restrictions following the outbreak of COVID-19. To organize the virtual show Before Silence, Afghan Artists in Exile, the two partnered with the Pan America-affiliated nonprofit The Artists at Risk Connection to bring together the work of nine Afghan artists now dispersed around the world. To learn more about the situation faced by these brave artists, Artnet News senior writer Sarah Cascone spoke with Julie Trebeau, director of the Artists at Risk Connection, Alexandra Zantaki, the UN special rapporteur in the field of cultural rights, and Shamayel Shalizi, an Afghan artist currently living in Berlin. Here is their conversation. Welcome to the Art Angle, ladies. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'd love if you could all just introduce yourselves to the audiences listening in. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having us. I'm Julie Trebeau. I'm the director of the Artist at Risk Connection ARC at PEN America. And then we have Shamayel. Hi there, everyone. I'm Shamayel Shalizi. I run a e-commerce business of jewelry and clothing called Blingistan. And I also am a multimedia artist and a proud Afghan. And then we have Alexandra. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to be here. I'm Alexandra Zantaiki, the UN Special Rapporteur in the field of cultural rights. Since this is the art angle, I thought we'd start with the artist who's with us today. Shamayel, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? When did you first move to Kabul and what were your memories living there growing up? So I spent the first six years of my life in Moscow and then I lived in the U.S. And then I moved to Kabul when I was about 14 it's not one memory or a handful of memories. It's my childhood and then into my adulthood, my teen years, into my early 20s. It's home. It's my passion. It's part of my identity in a very deep way. I can't boil it down to one experience or one feeling. It's just a plethora of things that has completely shaped my life. And then you left the country in 2017. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So I was doing my university in Paris and I started my master's in London and I was studying social anthropology specifically at the School of Oriental and African Studies to come back and work in Kabul. I expected myself to do something anthropologically, not really go into the art field at all, more keeping that a hobby. And then towards 2014, problems started arising with what my father did for work, which was a sustainable farming operation that was supposed to incentivize local farmers to grow other agriculture as opposed to poppy to make opium. Angora goats, saffron, these kind of bigger, actually more lucrative crops than opium. So around 2014, problems started arising. There was a lot of corruption in the country. There was a lot of traditional, culturally specific problems arising in my family. And in 2017, in October, my father passed away. I had been going forward in my life in a way that was very dedicated to the country. And when I saw him pass away, be killed in this way that was associated to his deep love for the country and what he wanted to do moving forward to help the country, it very much disillusioned me. I'm so sorry. Thank you. I finished my master's degree and I came back to the country and then like didn't feel comfortable. Then he passed away and then it just got worse. And I had this very big kind of like crisis of faith, dark night of the soul that lasted for about two years into COVID. I started healing that trauma and dealing with the fact that I have a very intimate relationship with Afghanistan. It's not just part of who I am. It's what my life's mission is. So I had to heal that. I had to be okay with the fact that I had a trauma where I thought that the place that we dedicated our lives to and we decided to love so wholeheartedly betrayed me. And that took time to get past. So COVID hit. I had a flight back to Kabul. I was going to move permanently. I was here in Berlin. I couldn't travel, obviously. So I postponed it, postponed it. And then I was ready to go back sometime last year, like towards May, June of last year, 2021. And all was fine. And my brothers were like, just wait a few more weeks just so the American withdrawal completely finishes and then come back. There's like too much noise happening right now. And then slowly July started coming in and things were getting worse and worse. And then August happened and the fall of Kabul happened. And my whole life has changed overnight. I can't even imagine. I know the experiences have really informed your work as an artist. Can you speak a little bit about how activism expresses itself in your art and also that longing for home for Afghanistan? Art was always part of my life. It was always a place for me to do something with my emotions and my feelings and explore things that I was interacting with. I had a very strange upbringing, and sometimes I just needed a space to do something and have my voice show. So, one thing that dramatically changed for me moving to Kabul was actually seeing the fact that I could make more art. So, I was very limited to kind of maybe acrylic paints, canvas, having like little clay sculptures, things like that. 
when I was in the West, when I got to Kabul, then I was like, wow, I can actually do more art here because there's more resources. There's more space for these things. I started making jewelry because I wanted to express myself that way. And it was available to me in Kabul. I could go and sit with a metalsmith and work on my designs with my actual hand-drawn designs just directly there. So it opened me up that way. I think as a group of people, Afghans have a very strong relationship with art, with music, with our poetry, our heritage like this. So art was very much something that was supported and nurtured and fostered for me within a space of Afghans. My father always encouraged it. The people that I grew up around always encouraged it. So a lot of the conversations I wanted to have with Afghans as a whole started to show up in my work. And I am 29 years old and a lot of things have happened in my life, I think, that's shaped me a lot. But I'm still, in the way that I see my art and art as a career, I really also watch myself grow up through my art. There's some art of mine on the internet, for example, from 2017 that I have absolutely no feelings towards anymore. Like, it's not part of me. I've processed that it's not my identity anymore. And since I work so much with identity, I find this very interesting to see time change a step. That was my story then. It's different now. And and that development. I also have this very sad story associated to my art. But when things started to go downhill for me and my family in Kabul, we lost the house that we were living in and we were homeless, which is terrible in and of itself. So about, I would guess like, 60 to 70% of my life's work was lost in that. And that's something that's a really big deal for me now. Like now that I can actually confront that is seeing what's been lost. What do I only have a photo of left? And tracking this whole journey as part of like, I'm very much within my own art. I'm part of it deeply. That feels a little ridiculous to say because who isn't deeply in their art, but it tells my life within it as well. So it's like, it's a, it's an intense, intense space for me. It's horrible that you lost so much of your art, but I'm so sorry. Everything happens for a reason, you know? This is what's happened and I learn from it. Everything is a learning experience. And I'm being Afghan in and of itself, it's intense. It's a very big, big identity with a lot, a lot inside of it. A lot of feelings, a lot of emotion, and unfortunately, a lot of pain. So learning experience, learning experience. So right now your work is in the exhibition Before Silence, Afghan Artists in Exile. How did you find out about the show and why did you want to participate? Well, Barbara actually sent me a message on Facebook and I was like, this sounds interesting. I'm trying to take almost every opportunity where someone gives me a platform to speak about Afghanistan, especially when there's room for my nuances to kind of be spoken about specifically because I don't ever admit to being 100% part of the Afghan diaspora, nor do I feel 100% attached to being born and raised in Afghanistan. I'm somehow a mix of both and yet none. And unfortunately, this is something that is not at all understandable to a huge majority of people. When I have a little bit more room to be like, I'm not this, nor am I that. Can I have a third way in? And can I show that? Then I'm also going to take it for that reason as well. And what pieces do you have in the show? 
And can you tell us about them? Actually, interestingly enough, one of the pieces that are in the show was the exact piece that I was referencing that I have absolutely no connection to anymore. And I feel like that's a part of my life that's been explored and dealt with, right? Which is the series of, I think it's 19 or 20 portraits of myself that I did in my early 20s. I'd had this idea for a long time and it was called Tell Me Who I Am. And it had to do with how identity is not just what I feel like. I am. It's also what I get read as. And that could have to do with skin color, the accent in whatever language I'm speaking in, as well as people's stereotypes, right? So I wanted to explore that. And it was born out of being in Paris and going to university there and how I was interacting with my identity and how it was being received in specific instances. That is one piece that's in this exhibition. And I think I'm doing a collection, their text-based large-scale paintings that are directed to an Afghan-only audience. And I've been making them in English, Thedi and Pashto. I'm still in the middle of working on them. They're in the specific language for the reason of why I want that group of Afghans who speak that language to interact with it. And it's really about confronting uncomfortable truths about our history, what we've been through, patterns we're repeating, patterns that we're not addressing, history that we are rewriting, as well as internal cultural things of like parts of who we've made the Afghan identity. It's like part of an Afghan identity. So I've been working on that. And that's the one that's called Immigration is one of the most dehumanizing processes on earth. We're hot and they're cold. And this is based off of my own lived experiences as well as experiences of friends of mine that I grew up with in Kabul who migrated post-2015 to Europe. And just the full circle that me and my friends specifically went through as I was interacting with having been in the West and then coming to Abu Nassad and coming with all the baggage that I came with to Abu Nassad. I was very, very uncomfortable with my own identity. I had suffered through a lot of just systemic bullshit in the West, you know, like racism, colorism, poverty, all these things, classism, the sheer chokehold of American imperialism and capitalism. And it was something that I would speak a lot with my friends in Afghanistan about, and we would unpack it. But now, unfortunately, some of those great, great friends that walk me through those things that they may have not understood are now confronting it now that they've come to Europe post-2015. And they're like, oh, that white supremacy shit you were talking about? Now I get it. We only saw it to a degree in Afghanistan. Now I get it. Assimilating is very dehumanizing and we don't speak about it. So that's one that I thought could fit the audience that would be seeing art at a time like this as an exhibition, but I'm working on many other ones. It's just for us Afghans to sit and be like, what are we doing when we're in the imperial core and how does it affect us as human beings and also as Afghans and how we can be better for our country and help it? I think the last piece that I have in the exhibition, it's called Who is More Oppressed? And it's three paintings of me side by side in a kind of black and white, two color format. And it's me covered in Muslim clothing that I wouldn't wear enough on a song actually, but being fully covered, just eyes showing, then just the hijab, chadad kind of thing. And then the last one is me upside down, pussy popping, which is a type of dance where you shake your ass upside down. And I wanted to ask, does liberation go from left to right or right to left in the series of painting? And my conclusion is neither. They're both 
oppressive going left to right and right to left because we are not liberated by what clothes we're wearing. And, and that was something that was important to me growing up as a teenager is really learning and unlearning that because a lot of it is also tied to Islamophobia that's very, very prevalent in the West. Wow, thank you. And you're one of, I think, nine artists who are featured in the show. And I wanted to talk with Julie a little bit about how Artists at Risk Connection has organized the exhibition with art at a time like this. How did that collaboration come together and what is the goal of the show? Actually, we started discussing with Barbara and Anne at Art at a Time Like This a few months before the U.S. withdrawal about our work at Artists at Risk Connection and Art at a Time Like This, like how we could collaborate on an exhibition showcasing the work of artists at risk and specifically uh, detained artists as many artists around the world are actually in jail because of their artwork. And as you know, we were entering this collaboration, the US withdrawal happened and we were overwhelmed at Pan America and Artists at Risk Connection with so many requests for assistance coming from Afghan artists. We were, to be very honest with you, we were working on many cases of Afghan artists before the U.S. withdrawal. Uh, it started in 2018 with many requests from photographer, filmmaker, and musician who were receiving attacks against themselves, their artwork from the Taliban already. And, you know, alerting us that any people were speaking out against the Taliban and against the corruption of the government were putting on a watch list. So we realized that something was really happening in Afghanistan way before the U.S. withdrawal. And of course, when it happened, we were submerged by all those requests. And I went back to Barbara and Anne and saying, listen, we really should create a space where we could showcase the work of Afghan artists. And so, you know, we starting working on a list of potential artists and together we kind of arrived you know at this idea of hosting a virtual exhibition that could really share the work of this powerful artist with the world and without running the risk of any pushback on an event or on a physical exhibition so this is you know what we wanted to achieve, like, what does it mean to be an Afghan artist at a time like this? And ARC, can you speak a little bit about what inspired its founding and, and its work over the years to protect artistic freedom around the world? So the Artist at Risk Connection ARC is committed to safeguarding the right to artistic freedom of expression and ensure that artists and cultural professionals everywhere can live and work without fear. So we are a global network of 800 organizations providing crucial resources for artists at risk. So art really plays the critical role of liaising between threatened artists and the organization that can support them. So we raise awareness around threat to artistic freedom and the work of persecuted artists, but also mobilize art and cultural institution to play a more prominent role in assisting their field's most vulnerable members. ARC is a program of PEN America. So as you know, PEN America and the PEN 
network. So we are the American chapter of Penny International. We have centers all around the world. We are dedicated a lot of resources and our work in helping persecuted writers. But since past more than 10 years ago, we were receiving more and more calls from non-creative writers. And we didn't really know how to help them. There was not a really clear protection mechanism for artists, for artists from all disciplines. So it's how you know, we created art to kind of fill this gap, to have a bird's eye view of the field of artistic freedom and help to connect artists with the support that they need. You know, the most kind of requested type of assistance are emergency fund, legal assistance, fellowship and, you know, residency, but most of them ask for relocation program in neighboring countries. So they don't want to stay far away from their audience, their family, be in a kind of country where they can speak the language, that they have familiarities. So we play this role in assisting artists to be connected with the support that they need because the support, unfortunately, I'm saying unfortunately, but it's very fortunate that there are support for artists, but it belongs mostly to human rights organizations. So there's kind of a disconnect here that we are playing, filling that gap of kind of telling artists, here are the support and this is where you should apply. So we help them applying to uh, emergency grant to all those types of support and assisting them to get successfully the support. That sounds like really important work that's helping so many people. That's amazing. I wanted to ask specifically about Afghan artists right now and what you're hearing from them. I know the artists in the show are all in exile. Did you consider showing artists who are still in the country or would that put them too much at risk? And what are they kind of facing on the ground right now? All of the artists in Afghanistan was kind of immediately at risk after uh, the Biden administration announced the withdrawal and the Taliban took over. So it was really clear to us that we should actually not invite, unfortunately, artists who are currently in the country because the exposure of the exhibition will make them at risk, even more at risk as they are right now. So yes, definitely, we, we made that deliberate choice. It was heartbreaking on our side, to be honest, because there are so many artists in the country who really uh, need the exposure about their work as well, but that will endanger their physical situation and the situation of their family. We also didn't uh, want to put Afghan artists who are currently kind of in a third-party country where they are not safe. They are thousands, Sarah, of artists from Afghanistan who are currently in Pakistan, in Iran, in Qatar, and are waiting for uh, help and assistance to relocate in a safe country. So we also, you know, we're thinking if the person was not in a safe place, we will not, unfortunately, put them in a show. In the hope that actually this is an ongoing collaboration. We are still continuing inviting artists uh, like this. We can be able to invite those artists when they will be safe to participate in the show and to access this platform. I will definitely watch this space then as you're able to build on what you've already have on view. I know right now the UN Human Rights Council is taking place in Geneva 
and that Artists at Risk Connection has issued an oral statement about the situation of artists in time of war and crisis. So I know you're really trying to get the word out about artists, not only in Afghanistan, but obviously other parts of the world since this show launched Ukraine. That's one of the goals of the projects, really to raise awareness about artistic freedom and the current situation of artists at risk around the world. So having the opportunity to take the floor at the interactive dialogue of Alexandra 10 days ago was really important. We could have a joint oral statement with 70 other organizations supporting this call to actually have artists, you know, recognized as a group, artists, you know, who are taking threats because of crisis, because of war, uh, should be recognized uh, as a specific group at risk, uh, which is not the case right now. And we are really working to make that a reality, that this will enable more support. We'll have a kind of a direct outcome on the ability to get more support for artists at risk as well. So, of course, we mentioned Afghanistan, but we mentioned Myanmar, Cuba, and of course, Ukraine. And that was very important for all of us, not only for us, but for all our partners to join uh, this statement in support of um, Mrs. Zantakis' report. So I wanted to speak with Alexandra. Your job title is the UN Special Rapporteur in the Field of Cultural Rights. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about what exactly that entails, how you came to be appointed to this job? And is this the first time that the UN has had someone in this position? No, um, I am the third UN Special Rapporteur in the field of cultural rights. They're called the jewels of uh, UN structure. They are individuals who are uh, nominated, elected uh, and appointed by the United Nations to focus on specific themes or on situations in specific countries. Uh, There are 55 uh, special procedures. So there are UN special rapporteurs, independent experts, and uh, working groups. We call them special procedures. And they work very well because they issue thematic reports, which means that they draw attention to specific issues within their mandates. And also they issue communications. So they receive uh, complaints or information about concerns individuals may have Uh, within a state uh, with regards again to their mandate. So for me, it would be cultural rights and cultural diversity within countries. And we enter into a dialogue, a confidential dialogue with uh, the country, hoping that the country is going to change uh, their policies or laws to stop the issue that concerns us. And if not, then we can mention publicly that we feel that this is an issue of concern, which sometimes has the desired outcome if the confidential dialogue doesn't. This is what the role entails. All of us, including myself, we're not being paid for these roles. Uh, So in a way, we're volunteers and all of us have different main job. Um, So for example, I am a professor of law at Brunel University, London. Uh, It is a role that um, one can have for three years, renewable for another three years. So the first UN Special Rapporteur in the field of cultural rights was Farida Shahid, a sociologist from Pakistan. 
The second was Karima Benuna, an Algerian-American academic. I am the third year in Special Reporter. I'm, I'm Greek, but have been living in the UK for um, the past 25 years. I can hear a little bit of both those things in your accent, I think. Indeed. So can you speak to the impact of fundamentalism on cultural diversity and cultural rights and how that leads to artistic censorship? So the impact of fundamentalism on cultural rights and artists is very tangible and very real. Uh, Fundamentalism means that one is very clear about aspects of life and very black and white. And this is exactly what not culture is. Culture is this colourful, varied sum of traditions and view theories and approaches and cultures. And this is how fundamentalism impacts very negatively on cultures. But also it impacts very negatively on artists. Usually uh, fundamentalism is very intolerant of um, anything that is different to it. I wanted to pick up on something that uh, Shamayel said. A lot of things that um, she said ring true with what the report that we have done on fundamentalism uh, says. She said that culture is not static. Culture is evolving. And also one does not have one culture. One has influences from different elements of culture. And you don't always know which parts of your identity come from which culture. And sometimes it's the mixing of these cultures. Last year's report of the UN Special Rapporteur was on the mixing of cultures, which I thought was quite interesting. And fundamentalism is very intolerant towards this. Unfortunately, we have seen this in Afghanistan, but we see this in many parts of the world. But I also wanted to be very clear that even in places that we feel are free and democracy rules, etc., we certainly see intolerance. Certainly fundamentalism is used at times to undermine specific cultures in places that maybe at the moment suffer from fundamentalist elites. So what uh, Shamayel said about the amazing Afghani culture that sometimes the West, we don't fully appreciate the nuances and the different practices and different elements. For the UN, how does the UN see the role of arts and artists and the importance of cultural heritage around the world? Uh, Sometimes we forget that the United Nations is an organization that is all the states together. The standards, the UN uh, treaties allow specific measures to be taken for the protection of artists. And this is something that we have to be very clear about. States do not have the obligation only to ensure that themselves they don't violate the rights, but they also have the obligation to protect art, to protect the artists. So it's not enough for the West to allow artists in exile to come and stay uh, with us. It is very important that all states take measures to protect these artists who come and stay with us. And it's not enough to protect their own citizens and their artistic expressions but it's essential. They have undertaken the legal obligation to take measures and steps to protect the artists who are not citizens of the state as well. That brings me back to Shamayel. Obviously, your plans to move home were delayed 
What's next for you? Can you stay in Berlin indefinitely? Do you plan to do that right now? Honestly, I don't know. And I've been thinking about this a lot. I have the ability to try and stay in Berlin for a longer period of time. But to be quite frank, when you have lived in the global South, it makes living in the West absolutely unbearable. Unbearable. Life is not lived here. People are barely surviving. There is no thriving. And even in a place of war like Afghanistan, life is actually being lived because there's a different set of values that shape that country. So if I cannot be in my country, I would prefer to be in the global South. So I've debated, you know, potentially India or Tajikistan. Right now, I don't have any plans further than staying at least uh, staying here until June, staying in Berlin until the end of June. And then after, I, I really don't know. And I wonder, maybe all three of you, this might be something you, you have thoughts on. From what I've heard, the Taliban rule this time around is different in that there's been less overt cultural destruction that, you know, the museum in Kabul reopened under Taliban security. Do you see any hope that the regime will be more accepting of artists? If I may, I think it's very important, especially now because it didn't happen 20 years ago and it didn't happen 30 years ago. So it'd be great if we could do it right this time. When we talk about the Taliban, we have to remember who the Taliban are, who they have allegiance with, and why are they doing what they're doing. Unfortunately, the Taliban are not just Afghan mountain men who are righteous and believe in a holy book. They are a group of mostly the low levels are impoverished child soldiers who had no access to anything as some of the most oppressed people on the border towns of Pakistan that's been a notoriously disputed area, taking advantage of the poverty and oppression of those people. And with the help of U.S.-funded books and armed weaponry, ISI and House of Saud, you got the Taliban. They're not they're not born in a vacuum. So when they ruled in 96 to 2001, they had a specific role in the world. They were discussed a certain way. International media spoke about them in a way that was obviously self-interested. Now that the Taliban has taken over without really the conversation that the Taliban have had provinces of Afghanistan. There has been fighting constantly for these past 20 years. There's parts of the country that I couldn't travel to because of safety. And there would be maybe passing by somewhere, oh, the Taliban took that area the other week and then lost it and then took it. You know, there was never a moment where Afghanistan was truly liberated from the Taliban. But we have to remember that this time around, since it's associated to the American withdrawal and who are the power players here, Pakistan is an ally of the U.S., but also is aligned to China. There's a lot of backdoor politics going on, which has always been the case with the Taliban. But now it has to suit everyone's needs. Right. Unfortunately, the Taliban, like I mentioned, are not just an organic group of men who want to save their people. They are trained. They were created. They were born to push an agenda 
So now that the agenda is kind of getting switched, I don't know. I'm not in these back rooms. So I've noticed in the past few months since they've taken over since August, even the way that they took power shows you that multiple people on opposing sides of them knew that it was happening. It was planned. The peace talks in Doha were a bunch of bullshit that's been happening for over two, three years now. We knew that something was happening. We aren't privy to all the information. With that being said, I've noticed that the Taliban seem to be a little bit more ready to protect their capitalist interests. They're much more overtly capitalist this time around. I think there is also a little bit, which doesn't mean that they're not being terrible and ruthless like they were in the 90s, but what they're doing is kind of discussed differently. Like we see a lot of non-Afghan media trying to spin that Afghans want the Taliban, which is like, have you guys been asleep? What are you doing this for? This is completely propaganda, right? So when you don't have all the pieces to the puzzle, you can't, I can't give any kind of, any kind of intellectualized answer of how evil they're going to be and how not without knowing what's going on behind closed doors. And also because there's too many other hands involved in this and it suits certain people to do things in certain ways. And I, I've just kind of circled around the same thing, but I hope that that's a little bit clear. You know, when you look at the Buddhas of Bamyan being exploded, Mullah Omar's idea with that was not because he was nervous that Afghans were praying to them. Never. He released a statement. He was very open about why he did that. It was because the foreigners were all up in arms, worried about the Buddha, while children of Afghan descent died on the street. And they that didn't matter. We have to preserve the cultural heritage. This is by no means me condoning the Taliban, but it's like there are strategic things they're doing at certain times for certain reasons. They wanted to do something controversial like that to make a statement about help from you know, charity organizations and humanitarian aid. So they did that with the punishment to culture. It wasn't about the culture. It wasn't about praying to Buddhas. And then nowadays, maybe they're a little bit more interested in being like, hey, this person is living under our rule and does artistic things and they're fine. Look at them, which is which has happened. But then they'll go and also kill artists too. So it's like, it really depends. And I, I don't think we should look at them as being somehow changed in a positive way. I think we can go ahead and look at them for being changed in a negative way because they've had more time to unify. Look at how they've changed on a sinister level. And it's not helpful that they've become more capitalist. That's not for any kind of goodness towards the everyday Afghan people. Wow. Thank you, Shamayel, for sharing this with us. I think I have a really, the same reading in this takeover by the Taliban, they were prepared, definitely, and we have seen them getting prepared. I think Shamayel mentioned a certain number of very specific events that were making us as civil society organization very worried about uh, what we were seeing on the ground. And as I say, Sarah, we have been in touch with many artists prior to the U.S. withdrawal, were really telling us uh, this is happening. We are on watch list. 
and we want to get out. A lot of artists actually left the country before uh, the withdrawal, as, as Shamael mentioned, as starting in 2015 until really 2018, 2019, a huge wave of artists move out of the country. What is very clear since the withdrawal, just to give you an idea, we have received just our little project, Artists at Risk Connection, over 300 requests from Afghan artists wanted to flee the country. And this is really the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we have other partner organizations who have received more than 1,000 of requests from Afghan artists. And we are still receiving uh, requests from Afghan artists every week. So I think that's telling you that no one feels safe and they are cracking down very harshly on music, but also, you know, being a visual artist in Afghanistan is now not possible anymore. And that's why we have seen a massive disruption. We have seen a lot of artists destroying their artwork in fear to be arrested because they have been uh, speaking out against the Taliban. Also on these 300 cases, you know, this is the highest number we have received coming from a country. We have received over 500 requests for assistance uh, since 2017, coming from 71 countries, not counting those 300 uh, requests from Afghan. So it's just to tell you, you know, at the size of a small project, how bad the situation is for artists and artistic freedom. And we don't see hope, to be honest. And I think that's why uh, this collaboration with art at a time like this is really important for us, you know, to provide platform, to talk about it. And it's very critical to continue to talk about Afghanistan and Afghan artists while we are, you know, all working on Ukraine. And, you know, like uh, as a massive wave of refugees are coming to Europe, we should not forget a Western country, a European country is hosting Afghan, but not enough. And currently closing the border uh, to help out Ukrainian refugees, but what about the other one? What about the situation of Afghan who are seeking refugee in the West? That was definitely what I was going to ask you next was with Ukraine dominating the headlines, obviously it's a very serious crisis going on there as well. How important is it that we continue to stand with Afghanistan and Afghan artists? And how can people do that? What are some ways that people can support Afghan artists at this time and make sure that they're not forgotten and that they're not overlooked in light of Ukraine or other world events? You know, continue to share on social media, you know, the artwork, what is happening in the country, you know, to continue elevate the work of artists, but only also to donate to Afghan organizations, especially arts and cultural organizations. There are many organizations who are seeking donation to continue the work they are doing, to buy artwork by Afghan artists. We, we must protect and preserve Afghan cultural heritage. You know, we can only do that together. On the government side, I must say that the government must continue to keep their borders open to Afghan and issue visa to Afghan artists and Afghan cultural professionals. So we really kind of 
welcome country to kind of support, you know, a pass to permanent status for Afghan refugees because they won't be able soon to come back to that country. I just wanted to answer the question that you posed, Sarah. As uh, more crises arise in the world, it is very important not to forget the previous crises. Um, and also it is very important to discuss why the world reacts differently to different crises and to go back and check ourselves why uh, maybe parts of the world feel closer to the plea of um, Ukrainians than Ukrainian artists, than Afghani artists or, or Iraqi artists. And for those uh, artists or not who have tried to find asylum, they have faced a huge amount of trauma on top of the trauma they faced back in their countries. And we should create the space for these people to express themselves through everything, including through art. I think in terms of what can be done, it is important to ask the people of Afghanistan what they want to be done. There are hundreds of thousands of people from Afghanistan who are now outside Afghanistan. And I think that it is very important to allow them to tell us how we can help. Self-determination is, is a very important right. Uh, and maybe we have not taken uh, into account the right of self-determination as much as we should have in the past. And also, we have to recognize at the same time that politics and human rights go together, and there cannot be human rights development without some politics, unfortunately. And uh, we should try to use the politics in a way that is constructive and in the way that promotes the rights of the artists and also the rights of the Afghani people. We keep going back to black and white understandings of how states uh, react to crisis. It is important to remind ourselves that states, irrespective of their political agendas, have signed and ratified legally binding documents and they have agreed to respect specific human rights standards. And we have to go back to that and tell them again, 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 that this is what you have agreed to respect. So it is up to you to respect this. I think also it is very important, the Al-Mahdi case, where the member of the Anzardine armed group operating in Mali was found guilty of the war crime of uh, attacking historic and religious buildings in Timbuktu. And this is a fantastic precedent that we have now for intentional destruction of cultural heritage. And I think that we should use it as much as we can in Afghanistan, in Ukraine, and in other places where culture and cultural heritage is being destroyed. And I think also we have to attack cross themes, so extreme poverty and um, artistic freedom, right to participation and the right to opinion, etc. But I'm very clear that I really feel that we are here to help the people of Afghanistan to create the vision that they would like for their state rather than telling them what we feel their vision should be for their state. Shamael, you seem like you want to respond to that. What I wanted to say is if I could, because everyone's making really great points and I'd, I'd like to step in as a Afghan voice, not the Afghan voice, but a Afghan voice to say, I would also love if people 
really try to look at the bigger picture instead of just how can we donate or how can we pay an Afghan artist their rightful dues. That's also very, very valuable and necessary. But also there's been a shift in the past few years on a global level. Social media has made things different for people. I urge non-Afghans as well as Afghans who might not have all of this information to start learning what has happened in Afghanistan for the past 50 years. It's not the past 20 years and it's not since August. It's 50 years of things stacking on themselves. So if you don't have an understanding of how we got to this place, automatically it's going to affect how you can do anything and how you're even perceiving the situation. Because again, nothing happens in a vacuum. So we absorb things that we're told, like how refugees are getting treated differently between where they're coming from or not. We as Afghans have known that we are looked at this way, that, oh, our country has just always had problems, so we don't get as high of a place as Ukrainians. But question that within yourself. Decolonize the way that you think. It's a global thing, right? I would love if people sit and donate to Afghan things, Afghan-run charities. Like, for example, there's Asil, who's giving food donations all over the country. All the money that they make with donations are giving directly to the Afghan economy. They're buying the supplies from the Afghan economy. They're not bringing it from Pakistan or Iran. So they're empowering the shopkeepers and people on the ground and giving something to the economy as well as helping the people. That's one example. But when you're donating, I hope that everyone on earth sits and questions themselves about what is the business of charity? Charity is not just some wholesome, holistic, beautiful thing. Unfortunately, there's things like businesses founded off of charities because if a charity or an NGO doesn't have conflict, how will it continue? How will it pay its bills? We need to speak about that. We need to speak about all of these dynamics. It's politics and social work at the same time. And we can't come with Western biases. So it's not just a Western thing. It's a global thing. Afghanistan cannot continue being everyone's tragedy and place of trauma porn that they'll watch for a little bit to just be like, well, aren't you happy that you're not living in Afghanistan? No, there's a whole group of people that are very unhappy that they're not living in Afghanistan. And those are Afghans. That country means something to us. And it's worth a damn to us. But we have to sit and internally as a world ask ourselves why it's interesting to look at Afghanistan, specifically only when people are falling off of planes or very grotesque scenes of the country without giving the people of that country any kind of 3D identity at all. So I hope that it goes a little deeper than just supporting Afghan artists. I don't want to continue seeing Afghan artists getting massive grants, massive residencies, all of the flowers of a contemporary artist in the West because they're making work that caters to the white Western gaze. There is much more to the Afghan story than photographing Afghan women in burqas. Sorry, I'm an Afghan woman and there's way more to talk about than just that. Do not just give grants because it's feeding the narrative that you and your people have told yourselves to make yourselves feel better at night. You know, we have to also examine that. What art is getting published? What art is getting spotlight? Is there a reason why it's that art and not that art? So there's a lot. And I think people just need to be a little bit comfortable with what they truly hold dear. What are their values? And to kind of 
shy away from performative activism and actually incorporate activism in their day-to-day life. I think that it's been a really illuminating conversation and I really appreciate you joining us today on The Art Angle. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Sarah, and everyone who joined. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.